Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today's guest is author Simon Garfield, who joins us from St. Ives in Cornwall. Simon is the author or editor of around 18 or 19 non-fiction books. We're not quite sure, but there's a fair few there. He's written about timekeepers, letters, typefaces, AIDS, and the mini motorcar. His most recent book is called In Miniature, How Small Things Illuminate the World, and miniature things are what we are talking about today. Now, miniature doesn't just mean small. It means a scaled-down version of something that is usually much larger, but we'll let Simon explain. So, welcome, Simon. Hi Richard, nice to talk to you. I hope you can um, hear the occasional seagull in the background. Seagulls are very welcome. I'm also by the sea on the, the west coast of Canada, though I can't see any, but maybe, um, maybe we'll hear a few. Good. Right, we'll get started. Okay, so first of all, why write a book about miniature objects? It seems a rather random subject to tackle. <laughs> um, the original idea wasn't miniature objects on mass. Um, the, the original plan um, was, I, I goodness knows where this came from, uh, was to write a book which was called something like Four Men Build a Railway and uh, it was going to be four middle-aged men like me um, with a bit of time on their hands trying to build a model railway in a loft or a shed somewhere. And the book was going to be a little bit about the building of the, of the, of the railway itself and um, the, um, the desire to build something perfect. And then the bulk of it, though, was obviously going to be about the people building it and, and their particular lives and how they got to this point. And I, unfortunately, I couldn't find anyone. Well, actually, two problems. One, I couldn't find anyone who was actually willing to do, do this over an extended period of time of about a year. Um, because they obviously thought they would be terribly uh, exposed and uh, we would never talk again. And the other is uh, my agent thought that this would be um, maybe a little bit too extreme uh, and obscure even for me. So then I came up with the idea, okay, well, what I'm interested in, I'm interested in miniature things, and I always have been because as a kid, that's what one collects inevitably, you know, smaller versions of of things in the bigger world. Um, but I'm especially interested in, in the people who are fascinated by miniature things, you know, hobbyists in general, collectors in general, I'm one of those. And um, so it's sort of that world, small worlds in, in which I can, I can make some sort of inroads. And that's how the book came about. Um, so it's model railways and, uh, as you say, miniature books. Uh, miniature paintings, um, it's uh, flea, sur flea circuses, anything um, that took my fancy. So I also was drawn to the people you describe in the book. Would it be fair to say that miniature enthusiasts, hobbyists, are one, detail orientated, two, slightly odd? <laughs> um, yes is the answer, um, but odd in, in, the, in the best possible way. I, I'm always interested um, and intrigued by people who dedicate themselves to any passion, really, you know, any, any, 
anything that they get good at and expert in. And um, you know, I'm a, I trained as a journalist, and, and by tradition, what we tend to do is scoot around a lot. And I've been very lucky in so far as you know the, the the things I've written about and the books I've written about have been a diverse range of things that that have excited me for a couple of years and I'm interested in a lot of things so the next book that I write will tend to be not like the last one so I'm not an academic who will plow a furrow for, um, for, for years and years on end I, I, I wouldn't say I get bored with things but I just get excited by other things but I am fascinated by people who will such as um, the man who spent, who has spent and is spending uh, pretty much 70 years of his life building warships out of matches. And I thought, okay, this is um, an intriguing and unique uh, pursuit. Is this guy mad? It turns out he's obsessed, um, but not mad. I mean, in a way, sort of more, more sane than, than most people I know, because what he's found is something that a, he's interested in. B, he can perfect. C, he can do better than almost anyone else. And, and, and also gets a great amount of joy from. And, um, you know, and, and a, 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 a fantastic amount of um, satisfaction, you know, at, at the end of the day and weekends, although now he's retired, he pretty much does it all the time. And um, he, he, he has a... Um, he has uh, a, uh, a sort of way of looking at that life, which says, you know, it's a big confusing, as do a lot of me, a lot of me amateurists, it must be said. It's a big confusing, uh, sometimes unattractive world out there. But if you can create your own world, which is almost perfect because you're in control, um, then maybe you have a chance of finding ha happiness. And I think that's what he's done. That explains model railways, model villages, all sorts of other things as well. I thought they sounded completely happy, but that model shipbuilding thing, now I wonder, are the matches struck or n not struck? <laughs> They're mostly used, yeah. Um, right. And, and actually what tends to happen is he, he began by using kind of real matches that were used um, in pubs. He used to sort of go around pubs and clubs gathering these uh, matches and uh, and I will get his name because his name uh, just uh, eludes me uh, at the moment. We want to listen as well. We want to check him out. His name is Philip Warren. How could I forget? Because I only spoke to him about two years ago. And yeah, he so he used to go around um, where as a kid picking up matches from the places where his dad used to frequent and. Um, they were all used at that um, stage and uh, if they had little burnt bits on them he used to chip them off and the key to good matchstick making models is um, is really to get all the matchsticks the same or at least in your control so um, you know potentially the same and then obviously you would make some 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 shorter but um, he, what he then found is that he could buy what looked like matches in sort of, you know, model-making shops, but uh, he decided he wanted to use uh, the real things. And then if he did buy new ones, because often what happened uh, was that people would just give him 
uh, boxes of matches to encourage him. So even if they weren't used, he would then he would then chop off the uh, the the um, inflammable bits. Otherwise, um, you could see the whole thing going up in smoke very very quick quick quickly. I think. Of course. With one loose match. Um, <laughs> would go up and his 440 ships uh, made over about say 70 years would um, would, would uh, it must be said over and they cover he built essentially which is his great satisfaction the history of warships over time um, but um, I think if they went up it would it would be the, the biggest flagration of, of, of warships <laughs> ever, ever seen yeah, it'd be like the yeah, the end of the Spanish Armada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You didn't really touch on that of where it all goes wrong, and I just think of how clumsy I am uh, when I am dealing with well, even trying to sew like uh, sew something to mend a hole in a pair of jeans or something like that. It's that amount of detail is difficult, and it's then it's difficult not to prick my finger, and I find it difficult not to fall over and break something or fall on top of something. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, he would. You know, he he would throw things away if they weren't right. And um, you know, if you're doing it for that amount of time, the models you begin you you make at the beginning are, are a bit roughshod and aren't as uh, you know efficient and and, and exact as, as the ones that that he's made. He's uh, obviously making now. Um, so you, and it's the same with you know building anything kind of small. Uh, but I mean, God, if you're talking about tra tragic events. We, we sh you know, we should talk about those sort of micro uh, miniaturists uh, who who make you know tiny things to go within the eye of a needle or to fit in, on top of a pinhead, and and there uh, they can spend weeks working on something, and and then you know um, they they would they would sneeze and everything would, would go away. So um, <laughs> they're, they're, those are the disastrous ones, I think. Yeah. So in in, uh, in our rare book world, um, miniature books have been collected for centuries. Uh, as, as you detail in the book, it, it's uh, there's a lot of people very passionate about it. W what do you think's the appeal of a of a miniature book? Well, I mean, I ask myself, you know, that question. I I attended a um, a, a, a big annual convention of a, what they they call a conclave of the miniature book society in uh, Oakland. California uh, in the summer of 2017 and I went with that question uh, you know are, are these people mad are, are they just collecting what is essentially a kind of toy book um, um, just because they're small you know but actually what I realized is that they are essentially beautiful things as well now miniature books initially um, served a purpose that perhaps they don't serve now um, and they um, began as convenience tools. Uh, if you were um, a rel religious person, you would carry around the tracts and the Bibles and the other things you wanted to consult uh, on your person in a way you couldn't necessarily do uh, with a big, heavy book. So you would carry them maybe close to your heart. Um, and uh, they then became things of beauty. So we tend to think of a paperback as, you know, the first portable thing, but obviously a miniature book, and we're talking, we ought to maybe say what is a miniature book. It's something regarded and, and classified as some, something up to about three inches in height. 
um, and uh, they they then transformed from things. Obviously, you know, you could you could then um, if you were a printer, you could show off. Uh, if you were a compositor and a typesetter, you could show off how tiny could you make your point size of of a type. You know, down to two points, that would be pretty extraordinary. But then, you know, you could you could go even smaller if you used um, um, magnifying glasses. You could you could go smaller. So there was an element of um, how small can you go. Um, and then there was a, just a, a lovely feeling of, well, actually, isn't it fun to collect the entire works of, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes or Shakespeare in a miniature set? It looks rather beautiful. If you had a doll's house, uh, you would probably want a real book in there rather than just something that looked real. Um, that added to the authenticity. But the thing I realized most at this conclave was how beautiful these things were. They were just lovely art objects. So you could obviously get the text. You know, if you, you could pretty much get any established text that was in a miniature book at real size and it would be easier to, uh, to, to, to read and probably cheaper as well. But if you wanted something that was very, very beautiful to, to touch and obviously didn't um, have the storage problems that most people who collect books uh, have and um, didn't have to think about throwing things out or one book in, one book out or, or whatever it was, um, then miniature books were the answer uh, to that as well. And some of these things, as you know, on a book's command, um, you know, a great price. So they then was they then was established a collector's market and um you know that's obviously great fun as well yes i think they can have remarkable bindings but you talk about the typefaces something you know well um yeah it's they're stunning little objects of beauty and you could you can have an awful lot i guess without taking up much room quite quite the collection yeah and if you you know if you want that the entire collection of Sherlock Holmes, there was a, a German publisher, a miniature, a German miniature publisher that recently brought out a, a fantastic collection. So it would be novel by novel, short story by short story, um, you know, all bound up in a large number of volumes. You would also buy a miniature bookshelf to put these all in, so they would fit exactly in the Sherlock Holmes bookshelf. And this itself would be a lovely thing. So it's partly, you know, in answer to your question of, of, of why, it's partly a question of convenience, partly a question of uh, beauty. But a lot of me in your book don't have that much text in them at all now. So the ones that are made um, as art books are just these beautiful things. They might concertina out uh, to tell, you know, a great tale. Um, kids' books, uh, a lot of early... Um, ch children's books tended to be in smaller scale as well for smaller hands um, and, and they probably commanded even a higher price because they probably survived less well so if you find one in great condition um, then, then that would be of, of some value so all sorts of reasons to collect and, uh, and enjoy, enjoy them and, but there's also you know, this kind of thing that we never really get bored of, which is with any miniature object, I think, which is a, a kind of hey-wow factor. So um, 
when um, In Miniature came out in the UK towards the end of last year, I um, commissioned from a miniature bookmaker in Texas uh, 50 miniature copies of my book. And I thought this would be cute. And uh, they, they came back and they were pretty much exact replicas. I only actually asked for half the book to be printed up because otherwise it would have been too, too fat. Um, but absolutely extraordinary things. Very, very similar carver. Uh, you can read every word without a magnifying glass. And people were knocked out by, by, by them just because, you know, I mean, they made great promotional um, things. But people were just knocked out by them because people said, uh, who weren't necessarily in the miniature book world, they said, wow, this is extraordinary. And, and so, you know, who doesn't like to be who doesn't like to be wowed by uh, by a, a beautiful and 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 sort of rare thing? I think there is a wow factor, and I, I think the the one where I really feel it is where you visit a, a, a miniature village or a miniature town or what, whatever you call them, and when you're walking down the streets or the paths, you feel like a giant. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's it's a very it's a, it's a very odd thing, you know, because I went, so I spend a lot of, t I mean, I go around a lot of model uh, villages for, for my research, but the one that I went to long before I thought of uh, writing a book uh, was a model village in uh, Beaconsfield called Beaconscott, which is about 40 minutes drive outside London, and it's probably the oldest existing um, non-stop, you know, existing sort of model village in the world, um, coming up to its 70th, no, its 90th birthday, um, and um, it's an extraordinary place because you go in as a kid. Uh, I, I was taken by, you know, I was taken by my my parents, I'm sure, and. Um, you go in and you think this is extraordinary because even as a kid you're a giant and then you take your kids maybe 20 30 40 years afterwards and you are still as bold over as you ever were and what's so great about a place like um, Beckenscott um, is that first of all again you know if you talked about it, it's the dedication it's the love it's the obsessive nature of a few people spending pretty much their whole lives building a model uh, model uh, village, which usually contains a model railway as well, or another sort of model, um, you know, transport system. Some of them obviously have cars that, that go around, or, or, or um, uh, boats and, and uh, ships on, on on fake seas as well. Is the the attention is fantastic? What you realise when you go around is fantastic. There's also an idealism to them, which works a number of ways you kind of think well actually what they're doing again is sort of shutting out the real world so Beck and Scott is imagined it began in the in the first in the sort of the 30s and it's sort of an imaginary ideal 30s uh, village they try to modernize it uh, in the 70s a little bit and they brought in Concord for instance <laughs> that didn't work because it just looked odd and they realized well you can never actually keep up with the modern world so let's go back to the idea idealism and um, there's something uh, it's not not ideal insofar as 
you know, it's not a utopia. There is a bit of crime happening. There is graffiti. You know, the, 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 the police are chasing someone. There is a, a, a fire that, that, uh, that um, ignites a thatched cottage um, every 20 minutes or so. And that's all very sort of exciting. Um, but it's sort of, it's a lovely contained place. And I think that's the great appeal as well. You can, you can see a village in, you know, half an hour, but also, <coughs> excuse me, there are a lot of, um, you know, model um, Europe's or model worlds. So the latest one to have opened up is in Times Square. And it's the whole world. If you haven't got time to go on the grand tour or the, or the round the world trip, you now go to Times Square and you see, um, you know, a model Eiffel Tower and a model Big Ben and of course the model Times Square and that's what people really want. You know, the thing they go to first is the place that you're in. So you could go outside and see Times Square. But isn't it fun to go into a model village and see Times Square and how accurate it is and what they've done and, 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 and how well they've done it and what they think is important in the world uh, as well. So all those kind of elements um, sort of combine. Yes, I don't think I'd go to a, a model village for the drama. It's the <laughs> to feel big and to look at the detail and to be like a giant for a few minutes. I like that. Yeah, yeah. One interesting point you make in the very first chapter of the book is describing people's experiences when they first went up the Eiffel Tower after it was opened. Um, and there you, you were describing how they would look down onto Paris and they would see Paris laid out below them. Um, huge buildings would appear tiny. Huge parks would appear tiny. The river would be tiny. And it was a first time they'd seen that perspective because people weren't traveling as much as, as they were now. There was no air travel. And it was stunning for them. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, that was the, yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing that the revelation that even people building the Eiffel Tower, i.e. Eiffel and his, um, and his construction workers, didn't expect, really, that, that they would see Paris anew. You know, they, they were building something dramatic and exciting and what they thought was very beautiful. They didn't obviously realize how extraordinarily iconic you know, the Eiffel Tower would become. But what they didn't quite fathom was, was the fact that, as you say, they could see the whole of Paris laid out like a tiny model village, like never before. No one had seen this before. So the, the tallest other building you could go to before the Eiffel Tower opened in uh, 1889 was, was this, the view from the Notre Dame Cathedral, which was nothing in comparison. And as you said, hardly anyone really had gone up in the air, you know, if you've been lucky to go up in a hot air balloon, you were, you were probably terrified of your life, and, and, and very few people had gone in planes at that point. Um, so uh, this was a, a revelation, and uh, you could see your street, you could see it laid out in relation to other places, you could see the Haussmann Boulevard and all of that. Um, and then when you came down, you could buy what was pretty much the first sort of mass industrial scale souvenir you know everything had a miniature you could buy a miniature Eiffel Tower but then everything had a miniature Eiffel Tower imprinted on it you know it was the thing you took home and then you put that on your mantelpiece and then that perhaps was if you went early that was the beginning of your miniature 
collection of, of great, you know, world icons. So that was, that was sort of the double thrill of the Eiffel Tower. When I read that chapter, I thought of what we are going through at the moment with drone photography. Um, that gives us views of uh, landscapes, urban and that and and uh, natural ones uh, that we've never seen before. Things look completely different from a like a a, a vertical view, um, and I, I feel that is also quite interesting of what we're seeing at the moment from in terms of you know scaled down views yeah that, i mean that's a nice point you know and i i i ask in the book well what's the difference really between you know a, a, a drone and um you know a toy airplane that we used to you know fly far more like a remote control thing it's a pretty much the same thing you know so th there's a lot of a lot of um things that we uh played with as kids uh, and that's where it all really began that that that, that we we now still enjoy as um, adults. Uh, maybe there's an immature immaturity there. But you're right, the, the drone gives us that beautiful hovering detail that we didn't even get from planes. So, you know, we all fly now, um, but um, we see, you know, an aircraft take off and, and land and we see the airport as we approach and a few other bits and pieces of the sky is clear, but a drone gives us that that sort of incredible detail that, that we can um, control. I mean, obviously, we had aerial photography before then, and how important that was um, when we came to the, the First World War, and then obviously after that as well. But in terms of the, the, the multiple uses, and obviously Google, Google Maps gives us that um, to a great extent as well, you know. Um, and an interesting point, you know, about about Google Maps and 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 things that 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 provide us a miniature view in the digital world is that we talked about um, miniature books, but obviously what's what's clear now as well is that we all have miniature books, and they are called mobile phones. So um, we can read anything pretty much on a screen, which is you know, um, three or four inches high. Uh, we can get, um, I shouldn't obviously mention the word Kindle on a book, but we can get an app on our phones <laughs> that um, we can read pretty much everything uh, on. We can order endless amounts of books from Abe Books uh, on our phones. You know, so that's the other miniature world that, that we've all entered into and that we all well not all but a huge amount of people uh you know spend too much time in a miniature world that they they they, they never we never imagined possible you know 20 or 30 years ago so you also wrote about model train enthusiasts now i have to tell the truth here simon i started to skim through that chapter they don't have a great they don't have a great reputation and then lo and behold you told me that rod stewart was a model train enthusiast and i was very surprised um what surprised you when you were writing this book well i mean the thing about rod who who and i am a, an old fan of, of, of rod's early work with the faces and, and on his own um not so much recently it was 
that he wasn't alone. Uh, so rock and roll stars and model trains go hand in hand, who knew? So Neil Young, um, a huge model railway enthusiast, as is Roger Daltrey, um, and there are many more uh, who haven't yet come out of the closet. The great thing about Rod is that he came out of the closet by wanting to appear on the cover of a model railroad magazine in America. You know, he, he kind of said that actually appearing on the cover of this magazine was as significant to him as any amount of Grammys that he'd won. Um, and this was his, this is his passion. So he will do, you know, a week or two in uh, Las, Ve Las uh, Vegas on the condition that he has a suite that uh, allows him and his friends to set, set up a temporary model uh, railway there and that's the way he relaxes. You know, he's been on stage at wherever it is, the MGM Grand, and uh, you, you, need, you need two hours to come down and that's the way he does it. So a great relaxing thing he finds there. And, and um, there is a fantastic interview online um, you can find on YouTube that I quote where he's interviewed by Piers Morgan. Who, and Piers Morgan cannot understand the interest. And, and Rod, and he takes the, the mickey a bit, and Rod um, says, look, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of two different worlds. You either get it or you don't. The people who get it really get it, and they pour a lot of time and a lot of money into their sets. And those who don't think these people are nuts, uh, and there's no, there's no sort of halfway house there, I don't think. There's no way of saying, well, I quite like it. I, think, I don't think there are many <laughs> model railway enthusiasts who, who would sort of say, yeah, I can give or take, you know, my model railway. <laughs> they, they're, they're, they're very much into it, as, as is Rod. And my feeling is, you know, I mean, I'm not a, I, I, I'm not a model rail, railway person, uh, but I love watching them. I love seeing them. And I fear that I would disappear into my own sort of black hole if I began um, building one. I'm not, I'm not sure I've got the the uh, space all the time. Um, so maybe it's a it's a kind of ideal retirement uh, project. But I can absolutely see the appeal. It's again, you know, I mean, the the one thing I you know I try to have a sort of well, what is there a cohesion here between these miniature worlds and the miniature? and these miniature enthusiasts. And one of them is wanting to attain some element of control in, one, in one's life, you know. And so very few of us are going to actually run a real size model railway. Uh, but a lot of us can get pleasure from doing it at, at a scale that, that you know, we can handle and we want a train to set off at a certain time. Now, you could say, well, isn't this a terribly kind of immature thing, you know, putting on a cap and pretending to be um, the, the fat contro controller. And um, yeah, it is in a way, and, uh, but, but, but also isn't, isn't that quite a nice way to spend um, your spare time? Yeah, I, I can understand that. I can totally understand that. <laughs> um, so when I visited Paris, as you mentioned, I, I did indeed buy a mini Eiffel Tower. Um, do you, apart from the, the miniature versions of In Miniature, do, do you own any miniature objects yourself? Yeah, I do, I do really. I mean, I, I collect, um, I used to collect a lot more, really. I'm not sure why I don't so much anymore. I, I, I suppose because most of my cupboards and everything is filled. So when I was a kid, I did collect those, um, 
uh, sort of corgi cars and Dienki toy cars. Um, oh right, yeah. Although I don't, I don't renew that collection. Um, uh, I, I do still have those. But the, I mean, so as I said, I'm in Sinai's now, and uh, one of the things I've got in my in my the rafters here. Um, um, we, and they travel along the beams in my roof are about, and don't ask me why, Richard, about 20 uh, almost identical, although well, two separate sorts, versions of um, Corgi ice cream vans, uh, both about, all about sort of two inches long. Um, and there you go. So I had one of those for a kid, and I thought these would be rather beautiful and ornamental here, and they are. They're lovely, pale uh, and... and um, pale blue and sort of creamy tops and uh, so there we are so they traverse my um my the beams in tonight and the other thing i collect is um which i, I suppose i is still a, a, a viable live collection is model no not model uh um pocket uh tube maps of the london underground so um before but i collect the ones before the were sort of reunited or united for the first time on that great Harry Beck uh, tube map, which brought right the early ones together, the early ones. But what I have is a collection of maps before then, where all the lines were run by independent individual companies, and they all produced their own maps, and they're very, very right. colourful things. But they produce pocket versions. Obviously, when you got on the tube, you wanted to know where you were going, and so these are rather lovely things, and I have those framed up in my hallway. Wow, yeah. I've I've not seen pocket versions, but I have seen early pre-Beck versions um, where the, the, what you're seeing is much thinner. It's not that tangled web of spaghetti. It's, uh, there's less colors and it is so interesting to see, like the, like you say, probably the Bakerloo company running the Bakerloo line oh, or something they all, like that. One, there's, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can buy, you know, buy at the time you could get them. They were given free, I mentioned the, um, you know, map of the central line, just going through the middle of London in 1920. And uh, but you had no idea where to change because they were individual companies, so they didn't want to advertise their competitors as they oh, so they I didn't see. actually help you at all <laughs> uh, but uh, you know they they um i mean the great thing about the Beck map as, as we know you know was, anyway we're sort of off topic here but I, I could i could i will talk about tube maps maybe some other time <laughs> i know it, it's um I've seen okay. some fascinating ones, and they they are actually quite they can be quite expensive the earlier oh, the better now they can yeah absolutely yeah. Either way. Okay, one last question, and we ask this to all our guests. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? Gosh, okay, well, um, th this, this, this answers the question that you may also want to ask, which is what am I going to write next? And it's the same answer, um, because I'm reading a lot at the moment about dogs. So my next book is about dogs, and I know that you have had on eight books um, you talking about your enthusiasm for, for new dogs and, and dog books in general. So I'm going through a lot of those. My book hopefully will be different. I can't tell you exactly why, because uh, partly I don't want to and partly because I'm only halfway through it. So I'm reading a lot of dog books, um, beautiful things, books called The Truth About Dogs and The Difficulty of Being a Dog and books about dog shows and, and um, all of that. Um, so that's my work thing. And then for reading for pleasure I'm reading at the moment um, and the new novel by um, 
a, a guy uh, called Max Porter, who is an editor at Faber and Faber, um, who's written two novels. The first one was called Grief is the Thing with the fe- fe- Feathers, if I can say it. Grief <laughs> is the Thing with Feathers, that's better. Yeah. Um, and his new novel is called Lanny, L-A-N-N-Y, and it takes you into this very mysterious village, another miniature village in, in a way, so maybe not that different, uh, but written in a very beautiful, slightly sort of magic, realist uh, tone uh, with wonderful voices, has an element of uh, undermilk wood to it, so I would recommend that to anyone. Sounds good. We'd have to talk more about the dog books. I've, I could tell you, yeah, Every, I, I, I have a dog. <laughs> He's yes, at home no, now. I and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know, I mean, you talk about that, don't you, in, your, in, in the dog podcast. And um, it's, uh, no, they're wonderful things. And, and my dog, obviously, obviously, you know, is, is um, not with me today. I've got a black Labrador, but he, he's pretty instrumental in suggesting ideas for chapter themes in my next book. Indeed. Okay, uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining us um that's all we have time for this week i'd like to give a big thank you to simon garfield author of in miniature how small things illuminate the world for joining us and talking small stuff with us Uh, thank you um, a great a great joy richard and and um you know inevitably we'll we will talk again i'm sure about other things i'm sure we will thanks for listening My name is Richard Davis from Abe Books, and I'll see you next time.